Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss updates from across the battlefront and speak to Ukrainian chef and food writer Olya Hercules about her and her family's experience in the war, Russian colonialism, and the challenges faced by Ukrainians who've left their country more than three months after the start of the invasion. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 14th of June. Day 111. And today I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley and, in the studio, Olya Hercules. Our regular contributor, Dominic Nichols, is away in Norway with the British Defence Secretary. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from across Ukraine. Yes, well, several developments in the last uh, few days um, and and obviously in the last 24 hours as well. So first of all, um, Russian forces have cut off the last routes for evacuating citizens from the eastern Ukrainian city of Severodonetsk, um, according to a Ukrainian official there, um, as part of the Russian strategy to push for victory in the Donbass region. We understand that this was the, the, the last bridge to the city, has been destroyed, trapping Romanian civilians there and making it impossible to deliver humanitarian supplies. We've heard from the regional governor, a man called Sergei Gadei, um, who says that now 70% of the city is under Russian control and that some 15,000 civilians are now thought to be stranded in the city. And of course, the concern here is that, um, aside from the strategic um, concerns in, in, in military perspective, is is that this may well be another Mariupol-type situation where um, if the Russians feel that they cannot take it through conventional means, that they will essentially raise it to the ground. Um, it's already received considerable Russian bombardment, and that's going to concern. And just speaking to that, a, a Russian-backed separatist leader in the Donetsk People's Republic has warned that the Ukrainian troops in Severodonetsk must surrender or die. So quite concerning picture there. Um, we're also hearing that uh, from an, another spokesman of uh, President Zelensky's ministry that Ukraine has lost a quarter of its arable land since Russia's invasion. 
uh, most notably in the south and the east. This is from the Deputy Agriculture Minister. Um, but he insists that the food security of the country is not threatened. Um, and I quote, despite the loss of 25% of arable land, crop planting this year is more than sufficient to ensure food for the population. That's what he's told a news conference. conference. Um, but obviously this speaks to, as we've spoken about many times on, on the podcast, um, given Ukraine's prominence as a development, of, uh, as, a, as a, a grower of considerable supplies, uh, uh, food supplies for Europe and, and, and the wider world, particularly Africa. Um, even if the if food security of Ukraine is, is secure, then there are concerns that that may have a big impact um, around the world. And we've obviously covered that many, um, uh, many times previously. Um, we're also hearing as well that... Uh, well, actually, I'll pause there for a second. We're conscious I've spoken quite a lot. So um, I, you may have something you want to say on there, David. Well, I was, I was actually going to try and get us to talk a little bit about um, the fallout from the report we talked about yesterday on the podcast, um, which detailed just how much money, um, how many billions of euros the Russian state has made from the sale of its fossil fuels since the start of the invasion. Uh, And there's been some repercussions across Europe, um, particularly for Emmanuel Macron, who's been a accused of betraying Ukraine. Um, Would you like to speak to that, uh, Francis? Yes. Well, it's been very interesting that uh, Russia, we understand, has made 93 billion euros um, in fossil fuel exports during the first 100 days of the war. Um, And a large percentage of that, of course, has been uh, from France, um, Germany too, but France as well. And Macron has actually been accused of, of, of betraying the Ukraine, quite strong words after figures showing that the French imports of Russian gas have risen um, considerably since the invasion. Um, the EU in total has accounted for, for 61% of Russia's total fossil fuel exports, which is worth around £57 billion, um, even as, as the bloc has, re- has uh, moved to reduce its dependence on Russian energy. And it appears that France, Belgium and the Netherlands have snapped up shipments of the Kremlin's fossil fuels at discounted prices after other buyers have cut back on their purchases during the during the conflict. So yes, um, not a pretty picture on the energy front, unfortunately. Um, and as I say, France has become particularly criticised in this context because we understand that they've received 12 shipments of liquidated natural gas and other fossil fuels products worth over 900 million. Um, it, 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 in, since, since April and in May, April and May, so very, very considerable um, amounts here, and it just speaks to, as we've spoken about many times, the Europe's dependence on Russia. But it's certainly not a good look, and I think that uh, in the coming weeks and months we're going to be seeing just whether the commitments made by the European Union on the question of energy is really going to to happen or whether as it would currently appear there was a lot of uh, posturing but uh, a very different reality. And can I just ask you to talk a little bit about one more update? Uh, there's been a report from Amnesty International who said on Monday that uh, Russian cluster munitions have killed hundreds of civilians in the city of Kharkiv in the east, uh, accusing Moscow of war crimes. I mean, this, this adds to a, ca- a catalogue of alleged war crimes through... Well, through through the conflict. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, Francis? Yes, well, cluster munitions are have been condemned and even uh, there have been agreements that have been signed by many nations that, uh, that, that will say that they will never use them, but it would appear that Russian um, cluster munitions have killed hundreds of civilians in Kharkiv, um, according, as you say, to, to Amnesty uh, International. Uh, these are indiscriminate. That is the, the nature of, of, of cluster munitions, that they are indiscriminate, um, and they've been fired over the Ukraine's second city, um, 
unfortunately and tragically killing civilians in, in, in their homes, in their streets and um, in playgrounds, even cemeteries, we understand, um, whilst people are queuing for humanitarian aid and, and, and shopping for food. So um, terrible there. And we've done quite a, a long read today about these cluster munitions and, and the consequences of them, which I'd recommend that people that people read. Thank you very much, Francis. And just before we bring in Ollie, probably important to mention this. This is just coming through on our, on our live um, blog on the Telegraph that uh, the RIA news agencies, the Russian news agencies, reporting that the Russians have struck an artillery weapons depot with caliber cruise missiles in the Chernyiv region in the north. And the Russian air defense forces claim to have shot down a Ukrainian a MiG fighter jet and a Mi-24 helicopter. So there's more news coming out of the east. Um, can I welcome our, our guest, Olya Hercules? Olya is a chef and a food writer um, based in London. Um, we, we, well, Olya, it's over to you, really. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you both for having me here and, and thank you for doing this podcast. It's really important that you do it. It's important work. Um, <clears throat> I was born in, um, in the Kherson region in a small town called Kachovka, um, but I've been living in the UK for almost 20 years. And... Um, yeah, and I, I write cookbooks um, and um, I write about food uh, normally, uh, but now I'm also involved, like so many fellow Ukrainians uh, in the UK and all over the world in activism, um, you know, trying to help however I can, um, my family and fellow countrymen. So tell us a little bit about the the war for you and, and your family. What, how did you react? How did your family react? And what did they do? Um, well, for for months, um, they were actually incredibly stoic. So, uh, you know, being here, everything was just com- <clears throat> straight away, you know, just ex- extremely shocking. And you, we just didn't know how to react, really. But they were, you know, defiant. And um, my parents actually refused to leave their home in Kahovka in the Kherson region for... Um, you know, for weeks. Um, and my brother was in Kiev at the time of the invasion. And he, uh, at first, he thought he will go to Lviv with um, his uh, sons. He's got two boys who are 19 and 22. Uh, but then he decided to remain in Kiev and to join the territorial uh, defense where he is um, still now. And um, after the Bucha massacre, um it became obvious that uh, atrocities, um, extreme atrocities, begin once communication kind of is um, severed um, in, in, you know, in parts of Ukraine. And actually, we started losing connection with uh, with the Kherson region. So I uh, forced, pretty much forced my parents uh, to leave while they still could. So, so they did, and my other family from the Kherson region. Um, have have also left uh, and are now in Western Ukraine, and um, I have an aunt uh, who's uh, in Berdyansk at the moment, and we're really worried about her because it's impossible to reach her at the moment. I'm very sorry to hear about your aunt. Um, you mentioned your brothers in the in the territorial army. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Do you mean do you get to speak to him often? Um, what's his experience of the war been? Yeah, uh, he sends me a video every single morning and um, he's doing well. Um, When he joined, um, he sent me a picture of himself um, with a weapon but with no protective gear and that kind of sent me into a complete 
kind of <laughs> mode of uh, sh- shock. Um, so I made sure to um, raise uh, some funds and um, have sent him and his regiment protective gear. And I think, you know, there's there's thousands of Ukrainians that have been doing the same. Um, and um, ever since then, yeah, yeah, he's been training. Um, he's been... Uh, near Bucha actually helping to clear out uh, after the event and at the moment uh, that he is um, an officer and he has been put in charge of logistics um, to do with food so now he's in charge of 6,000 soldiers from what I understood from our kind of latest conversation that we've had and um, um, yeah and and actually there's Kherson region you've mentioned about the food supply but Kherson region is actually one of the biggest suppliers of um, vegetables and fruit in Ukraine and obviously um, all access to it is uh, currently gone so it's quite difficult to find um, things like beetroot and cabbages he said but um, some positive news from him uh, was that he managed to find 400 kilograms of strawberries which was an incredible treat uh, for our defenders because you know when you're in a situation that they're in any little kind of positive treat like that is a huge thing so he really cheered me up actually on Friday because I I think I really hit a wall last week and was feeling quite um, low but yeah the the strawberry story kind of picked me up a little bit. Just while you're talking about social media and and, and being able to communicate with your your brother, obviously social media has played a a really big role in in, in the conflict, not only in terms of of seeing what's going on on the the front lines, but also as communicating with ordinary soldiers and things like that. I just wanted to hear your your take on how important social media has been in, in keeping the morale high. Oh, I think it was a, a game changer. Uh, possibly the first instance of, um, you know, some something like that happening in a way that, yes, we are not only connected to people on the ground, um, but we are also, uh, I've, I, personally, I've also connected with, you know, so many people in Ukraine, journalists, um, volunteers, um, as well as volunteers and journalists um, and, um, you know, uh, ordinary people with the Ukrainian background or people that want to help Ukraine all over the world. So actually, we've been able to build this um, massive uh, network and have been helping each other uh, greatly, you know, even a simple thing like today, I've, I've connected with a woman uh, from uh, New Kachovka, um, wh- whose family is still there. And, you know, she just sent me a simple message today and said, look, I've got a family who's stuck in Germany. They've been put into a camp um, and, you know, they haven't been uh, able to find a sponsor. Can you help to spread this information? And I did, you know, so it's from the smallest things to the most complicated thing, like uh, trying to get 150 bulletproof vests uh, to a Ukrainian regiment. Um, can we just talk about the Cook for Ukraine social media project while we're on this on this subject? Because it sounds like it's it, it's it's a really a huge one. I don't think many listeners will be aware of it. With with nearly a million pounds raised for UNICEF, so can you just talk to us about that? Um, yeah, on the. Uh, on February, uh, you know, on the day when the, the day when the war started on the twenty fourth, uh, my friend and I, Alisa Timoshkina and I, met at a protest, um, and we were obviously in a state of shock, and we decided to 
uh, do something proactive in term, uh, in, in, instead of um, kind of just uh, getting upset and being inactive. So we have, um, we're both food writers and we've been involved um, in the project Cook for Syria. Uh, and uh, we, we knew the uh, people that have founded it and um, asked them for help to set up Cook for Ukraine. And, um, you know, we, we, we thought it would be just a really great way to educate people uh, with regards to Ukrainian food. So initially it was going to be a hashtag and people could make a Ukrainian dish, talk about Ukraine, spread the word and, um, you know, in this way, kind of um, help popular popularize Ukrainian culture. And then Alisa set up the Just Giving page um, and we decided to uh, collect money for UNICEF. And yeah, it, all of a sudden it just became a, a global movement and people have been um, organizing events and, um, uh, you know, anything from a small school bake sale uh, to, you know, getting whole restaurants involved in uh, raising money for Ukraine. Uh, so, yeah, it's been an incredible um, success. Can we talk a little bit about the uh, experience of Ukrainian refugees uh, in Europe? Uh, people have left Ukraine for for other countries. What's what's your experience three months on from from what, what do you hear from from the diaspora? Uh, yeah, I would very happily talk about this. Um, so just to give you uh, kind of an overall understanding of how anyone who had family in Ukraine felt. I mean, I, th- I think it's quite obvious that everybody was in a state of shock and trauma. And uh, my first reaction was as soon as the family scheme came on, my first reaction was to tell all of my close-knit family in Ukraine, uh, you know, the ones that have been misplaced had to leave their home, that, you know, absolutely I will organize a family scheme visa for them without really knowing what it was or how it works, you know. And, um, uh, you know, no, but nobody actually wants to leave. So none of my family came. My, my, my parents left and they're now in Germany. And my the only person that I have here in the UK is my niece because she was in Lviv and Lviv started getting bombed. And I insisted that I come and get her from Poland and bring her here. Um, and it turns out that the family scheme oh, is, well, it's it's a disaster. It's 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 unfair. Um of the home um the home scheme for example offers a 350 pound um monthly p- payment per person so councils are given uh from from what i uh, understand is 10500 10, um pounds per person per refugee um uh, those that come through the uh, uh, home U- homes for ukraine scheme but uh, the councils are given absolutely nothing for, for the refugees that come through the family scheme, which is incredibly unfair. So imagine um, someone, uh, a British person in Ukraine, who, who has invited all of the you know, relatives who are misplaced and, and desperate, and they all come here. And there are loads of stories uh, where uh, there isn't uh, sufficient accommodation for them, and they're overcrowded, and there's even uh, cases where people have to uh, register as homeless, um, you know, that's the, the, these are the extreme cases. Um, but even on a, on a less extreme case, um, you know, all of us would really benefit from just a little bit of financial support. Uh, because apart from receiving our families here and having to look after them and ha- to help them out, to go through all of the bureaucracy, which is so exhausting when we're already so exhausted, um, 
you know, th- there, there's nothing for us. Uh, and and at the same time, as well as supporting these families here, we, we are often support families that uh, our family that remain in Ukraine, you know, so currently I'm helping uh, not just my um, my family, my my uncles, aunts, and cousins that are misplaced in Ukraine within Ukraine, but also my my father's employees. He, so he he left Kachovka, um, and he has a factory, uh, a farming equipment uh, factory, and he has twenty plus employees. And um, you know, when I made him leave Kachovka, you know, one of his things that he told me he was like, "But I'm responsible for twenty families here. How am I going to leave?" So I promised him that I will help um, to support them financially, which actually, as you know, Kherson at the moment is um, closed off and it was almost impossible to get that money to them. But um, I'm happy to um, to say that uh, last last week uh, it was possible. I found uh, my childhood friend found some cash, which is in complete deficit. You know, all of the banks are defunct and you can't get any cash even to give to people. So we've been able to transfer some funds to them. So, you know, just to keep that in mind, that I don't understand why family scheme, you know, Br- British Ukrainians are being penalized basically for helping their families. We've, we've heard quite a bit about how um, Ukrainians in Ukraine regard Britain's aid and Boris Johnson. Um, but does that has that changed outside of Ukraine then? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's such a complicated thing. I, not especially now with, uh, with this war and uh, the lies that the Russian state is, you know, spouting out at us, I'm extremely, you know, I find lying extremely triggering. So I have my own opinions about Boris Johnson and the current government. Uh, but when I spoke to my brother on Friday and, and, you know, and I started explaining to him how we all feel here and, um, you know, and he said, Olya, you know, calm, but, but we, we also need, you know, military help here in Ukraine. So it's a really difficult question, actually. Um, so I have my own opinions, but um, it's, you know, it's it's almost between, <clears throat> I don't know, why why can't we just be helped on all, on, on all fronts, you know? It's the same, it's you know, in reverse with Germany. There's absolutely no military help coming from Germany, but the family, an equivalent of family scheme is working much better than here, you know? So it's, I don't know, it's it's an extremely difficult question to answer, to be honest with you. We're, we're all quite conf- confused with regards to, you know, what's most important. I just I just wish that we were helped on all fronts, really, within the UK, with our relatives and with our defenders, you know, our families, our brothers and fathers and mothers and sisters that are fighting for Ukraine and Europe now in Ukraine. Just whilst we're on this subject, has there been anything that's sort of frustrated you about the Western coverage of the war in Ukraine? Any big confusions or things that you feel have been inaccurate? Be interesting to hear your perspective on that. Oh, um, that, um, so you've just, you you caught me kind of, um, (laughs) I might need to think about this one. I mean, there's quite a lot there's quite a lot in in Italy. There's kind of quite a lot in in Europe and America, um, where you know the, the the concessions that we're supposed to make, you know, the the, the give up your territories and it, and it is going to be all over. That kind of message is, it, I it, you know, it's despicable. So to say that we have to compromise and to just give up some territory and then it's all over. I'm sorry, but this is not on. Absolutely not on. We are, you know, it's not just a map where 
people are free to take a pencil and start rewriting and redrawing the borders in that way. It's people and their houses and their livelihoods and their history and everything else. You know, my native Kherson region, for example, or Donbass or any other occupied territory, uh, you know, okay, yeah, let's just forget about those people. Okay, you can just be part of Russia now. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. My parents want to come back. They, they don't want to be in Germany. They don't want to be in Britain. They want to be home. So no, that, that's, that's actually, that's been really pissing me off in the, in, the, in the past month or so when people started saying, let's just give up some Ukrainian territory. That's not on. Yes, I, I think it, it's been very interesting seeing the remarks of uh, Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, which seem to be more in this in, in this way of thinking around um, concessions. And it seems to very rarely actually engage with the Ukrainians themselves. It's as if they're operating in a sort of different space almost. Um, but do, do you think, uh, this has been a question that's been asked uh, by, by a listener, do you think that there is any appetite in Ukraine for any sort of territorial concessions at all in the context of, of ending the war as soon as possible? Or do you think that there is a real resolve in Ukraine to, to fight until you know, absolute victory? Oh, I did not know of anyone who is up for giving up even a metre of Ukraine to Russia. I, I personally, I do not know anyone. And I, and I know quite a lot of people personally and quite a lot of people online. That's just not a question. And another question, actually, is the uh, is the slowness in recognizing that uh, actually genocide is being committed. You know, it, it, Hitler and what he did, you know, that's in history now and maybe that's easier to accept. But for some reason, uh, what's happening now is kind of like... You know, I just I just feel like there's a lack of acceptance. That's what's what's happening now is Ukrainians as a nation are being exterminated. You know, you heard Putin the other day. He's even dropped the mask. You know, not not like anybody believed him anyway. But now he's saying we're just expanding our empire. You know, we're taking land back and all of that stuff. And you know, you t- you spoke about it on the podcast yesterday, I believe. It's um, you know, it's there's just it needs to be recognized, and we need ex- urgent help. Just one more question from me on that, if that's all right. When we talk about Russian colonialism, what does that mean for you? Oh, it means um, so many things. And I have been I have been aware of it my whole life, but not but I didn't have the terminology, if you know what I mean. So I knew that it was happening, but I, I couldn't kind of you know, describe it intellectually. Uh, it was more of a feeling. You know, I've known since I was little that my mom and dad, when they were little in the Mykolaiv uh, region of Ukraine, if you spoke Ukrainian in a school, for example, you'd be called Seluk, you'd be called a villager, a peasant. You know, you were, you were discouraged from speaking uh, a Ukrainian language. Out of 10 schools in Vaznysensk, where they're from, only one was Ukrainian. And that was the worst school, you know, made so on purpose with the weakest uh, teachers with eight uh, f- uh, classes um, forms instead of 10 um, you know so obviously like all of the Stalinist repressions repressions of our culture etc you know I knew all of that but actually only now I'm realizing how deep especially in the uh, you know in the regions in the south and, and, and east of Ukraine you know the closer to the center to the Moscow center we were the more oppressed we were you know I grew up speaking Russian you know, a, mi- a mixture of Russian and, re- and Ukrainian, really. And I always understood Ukrainian. But when I uh, when I immigrated, you know, I left Ukraine when I was 12 and I uh, got into an English school in Cyprus and there was a questionnaire and it said, what's your first language? And I just kind of stumbled and I stopped and I said, 
oh my God, I really want to write Ukrainian, but shall I write it? Because actually I speak Russian. And then I came over to my mom and I asked, I was like, mom, I feel extremely Ukrainian, but why do we speak Russian, you know? And that was probably one of the first times when I actually kind of really, you know, that was made aware in that kind of way, even though my parents obviously always talked about it, but kind of outside of my family. And now, um, and now I'm learning more and more and kind of... Um, I know it might so- sound strange, but almost like trying to decolonize myself um, in terms of my knowledge of uh, Ukrainian literature and artists um, and, uh, I don't know, uh, political activists, etc. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to learn and I'm, I'm educating myself and uh, trying to also spread that kind of information on uh, Twitter and Instagram, etc. Just while we're on that subject, are there any Ukrainian writers or artists that perhaps listeners should be aware of that's writing either particularly eloquently about the war in Ukraine or perhaps just generally that they should read for understanding Ukrainian culture? Yeah, you know, I'm actually preparing. I have a really long list and I'm going to uh, post it on my Instagram if if people are interested. It's Olya Hercules. Um, At the moment, I'm reading uh, Lina Kostenko. Um, who's an amazing, um, you, you know, a contemporary Ukrainian writer. And I'm very interested in actually going back, to, you know, all the way back back to Lesya Ukrainka, you know, who's one of the first prominent Ukrainian um, writers. And um, but yeah, I, I, I have a very long and, you know, amazing list that I will that I will publish. And if people are interested, I would love to I would love for them to see it. In the West, uh, speaking on on the matter of culture, in the West, and I think you know certainly in Britain, Zelensky has become a real cultural icon, a, a figure that has been celebrated uh, around the world. Um, just wanted to hear your take on Zelensky. I mean, it, it seems that he was perhaps not universally popular before the war, um, but what's what's your take on him and, and his handling of the conflict since it began? I think he's been pretty amazing, actually. Um, <clears throat> he, he, my, I don't believe my parents uh, voted for him uh, and there have been a lot of um, uh, kind of loads of things that weren't going so well in the beginning of his presidency. I think people weren't entirely happy with, um, you know, as as always is the case, I think, you know, it takes time for, for changes to to happen, be implemented. Who knows what it would have been, whether, you know, if Ukraine remained peaceful and where he would have gone. But as a wartime leader, he's uh, proved himself to be uh, pretty incredible um, so far, and you know he he didn't he didn't leave, which is amazing. You know he he and not only that he he's uh, very eloquent and he's been making all of these amazing speeches. And as I think, especially at the beginning of war, it you know for our morale and kind of like. You know, it gave us strength that propelled us on uh, to keep going. I think he's done an amazing thing. I just have one more question on on Zelensky. Um, there's been some articles that have been written here in the West, and we've spoken about them on the podcast that, that sort of hypothesise what may have happened if Zelensky had had left the country, as you, as you described that he didn't do so, um, or if he had been killed. And we know that the Russians had tried to have him assassinated. What do you think would have happened if if that had occurred? I know it's very difficult as a hypothetical, but do you think that that he has been absolutely central to the Ukrainian effort to defend itself? Or do you think actually that that somebody else would have stepped in and we would still be in a similar situation now with with as far as the war is going? Mm, it's hard to tell. Um, 
No, I I think he, I think it was pretty important that he stayed. Not not just um you know, and then there was no kind of Russia didn't have another angle where they could have said, you know, oh there your your president has defected, you know, there's another junta or I don't know, you know, it, it could it would have been so much easier for Russia to manipulate the situation even further and it definitely would have um uh, you know, affected people's um, morale and um, ability and strength, uh, you know, to fight and keep going. Olia, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Um, is there anything we haven't um, spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to to know or understand? Um, I just would love to ask everyone to keep going and to keep supporting us. I know that summer is here and, you know, and, and there is fatigue. It's it's a normal, it's an absolutely normal thing for everyone to just get extremely tired of war and of bad news. Uh, but, you know, if you want to and if you want to take a break from headlines, that's fine. Maybe you can kind of, you know, read up on Ukrainian writers or whether contemporary or historical and, and keep posting online and just keep us keep us in everyone's um, um, kind of head and understanding a little bit. And um, yeah, that's I think that's my message uh, from me, from my family and uh, from my brother. Um, please, uh, we still need your help um, this summer and onwards. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more.